0: Hey, guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Now, Leon Tailoring is also well-known, we all know, for their tailor-made clothes, but you also know they're ready for their custom-made and ready-made clothing as well. That's right. Clothes that are right there on the directs you can buy and pick up, and they'll make the alterations included in the price. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. And of course, then you know, if they want something tailor-made specifically just for you, then they can do it. So whether it's tailor-made, whether it's ready-made, or whether it is custom-made, it is for you and you specifically. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you and happy to take care of you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware. Delaware in downtown Indianapolis
1: and as the debate continues I'd like to ask a question specific to voter registration Mr. Mauer I'll start with you where do you see the opportunities for improvement with voter registration and what effect do you hope these changes would have
0: Voter registration comes to, and being out of the campaign, it's about engaging with young people, so working in high schools and colleges, people um, who are coming of age to vote, uh, communicating out that parents can take their children with them into the polls and encourage them, show them the process of how to vote. And it comes back to giving them something to vote for, not just someone to vote against. That's been the problem of the duopoly. to give some, some, a reason to vote for, we need candidates, we need competition, we need trust in our elections. And that's going to come from things like receipts and audits that give us that insight and the clarity to say that my vote counts. I can see it, I can track it just like a package, and I know that my voice has been counted.
1: Thank you, Mr. Maher. Ms. Wells, specifically to voter registration, what opportunities do you see for improvement, and what hope would you like to have?
2: Where I see the Secretary of State's office in the state of Indiana operating from right now is a place where they are afraid of voters, where where we are afraid of registering the youth and the power of the youth vote. And so, what we need to be doing is operating from a place where we embrace our potential voters, where we talk to college students and we talk about their individual voting experience, where we don't mire the uh, information where it is confusing and people are unsure if they should be registering or how they should be registering, and also from a party perspective, we need to be engaging with the public and not just putting it off on a bunch of nonprofit organizations to do voter registration. It is a group effort from both parties and libertarians and community organizations to get out the vote and to make sure that we are getting individuals registered no matter who they are or where they live or what their politics are.
1: Next I'd like to ask a question about the most important role of the auto dealership division.
2: Ms. Wells we'll start with you. So it has Working with the Auto Dealer Services Division, um, there is a bit of a, a dynamic between auto dealers and the manufacturers. And what the auto dealers are wanting from uh, the Secretary of State State is to make sure that there is an equitable equitable process between auto dealers and the manufacturers. Also, auto dealers are a great example of not being included in the conversation of when statutes are set. And so after the fact, auto dealers find that there there are gaps in how we are making the sausage in the legislature. And so they want to be represented and they want to have that voice heard. And with that, um, you know, there are other practical standpoints of delivering titles to Hoosiers in time and making sure that the Secretary of State's office is regulating that process. Um, But it has been uh, good to get to know the auto dealers throughout Indiana. Thank you.
1: Mr. Maurer, the same question. What do you believe the most important role is in the auto dealership division?
0: The Indiana Secretary of State's Office Auto Services Division is tasked with enforcing state law for the auto dealers industry. And much of that's just cut and dry. But where there's an area for real focus and opportunity is in the gray areas where there are challenging relationships between the uh, franchise dealers and the manufacturers. And so when there are new requests that come out from the manufacturers, such as requiring additional personal data for customers and customer prospects, being able to adjudicate those and help dealers uh, manage those relationships with the manufacturers, perhaps through administrative courts is one solution um, that reduces costs and accelerates solutions, that is one way forward. But this is a great example where our private markets recognize the importance and vitality of private personal data. And that ties into our election data and making sure that our voter and poll worker data and registration databases are all secure and private. If it's good for the private market, it should be good for our citizens and neighbors too.
1: Thank you, Mr. Maurer. I'd like to ask the next question to you first. Why is it necessary for the state to determine operating hours for auto dealerships, especially for those voters who may not be familiar with this process?
0: It's not. As a libertarian, I believe in free markets, and I believe that businesses know how to serve their customers best. Uh, So at the end of the day, one bad review on a website or a search report can cost an auto dealer hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost revenues. And so they know their businesses, they know their customers, they are highly, highly incentivized to offer outstanding customer service, when customers want it. And so here's a matter where government should step back and listen, listen to the industry for what needs they have and work with them to ensure that customers are served fairly and protected, but that the dealers are enabled to serve their customers as best they know how. Thank you.
1: Ms. Wells, the same question. Why is it necessary for the state to determine operating hours for auto dealerships?
2: Well, there's always a balance between having government regulation and then also, to Jeff's point, um, fair and free markets. And so with the hours that have been set, those hours have been, um, uh, have been around for a very long time, uh, and that is where they have come out as far as allowing um, auto dealers the freedom to uh, operate but still making sure that we are protecting consumers. Thank you. Ms. Wells,
1: what is ballot security and what, if anything, should Indiana do to safeguard it?
2: So much of the um, debate and questions that are around elections come down to security and how safe are the measures? I will say that in the state of Indiana, elections overwhelmingly have been safe and secure throughout the years. In fact, Indiana has great safeguards on the process um, as far as ballot security. You know, as a twenty almost twenty year now military officer in military intelligence with Army Reserve, a lieutenant colonel, a lot of um, my background is in information security and cybersecurity uh, right now Indiana is part of a cybersecurity program where it safeguards uh, safeguards uh, ballots and so that uh, personal information is not being um, leaked on those ballots and then they're also not susceptible to outside attacks I would look to continue those cybersecurity efforts and making sure that uh, ballots are safe
1: Thank you, Ms. Wells. And Mr. Maurer, same question. What's ballot security, and should Indiana do anything to safeguard it?
0: Ballot security is being able to track your vote, to see that it was counted, received, and then audited, to be able to follow it through that process. Ballot security also means all the back-end technologies, processes, people, and protocols that ensure that privacy. And right now, we have these flashing red warning signs that suggest, yes, things are okay, but there are areas that we should tighten up. So if you've ever taken moved into a new home or a new apartment, you know one of the first things you're supposed to do is change the locks. Not that the last person who lived there is going to come back and steal all your things, but it's the right thing to do. It secures that vulnerability. And in our elections process, around our ballots, we have countless vulnerabilities, both physical paper ballots and even more in digital and electronic ballots. One of the most important things we could do is ensure that every ballot cast in Indiana has at least a paper backup. Right now, the the minority, only 40%, have any kind of paper backup whatsoever.
1: Thank
2: you. Ms. Wells, I'll offer you a 30-second rebuttal. I would like to say that there has not been any evidence put forward that Indiana is not already protecting its vulnerabilities when it comes to cybersecurity and information security with voting. Um, There have been multiple attacks, but the Secretary of State's office has put forward the evidence that they have encountered those and that they have dealt with them accordingly. Uh, That is why it is so important to be operating again from a fact-based, evidence-based place so that we are not perpetuating that there is a problem when one does does not exist. Thank you. Mr. Mayor. you have 30 seconds as well.
0: From a fact-based perspective, the Los Angeles County Department uh, D.A. Uh, made an arrest of a CEO of a software company called Pole Chief, uh, And this was this past week. And that software is factually used in Indiana. So we don't know the details yet. The indictment is still sealed. There are many details to come. But right now, we know there's a vulnerability, and we know that there may be more out there. We have to investigate, understand, and ensure that we're working diligently to actively and aggressively secure these vulnerabilities. Thank
1: you. The independent state legislature theory suggests that state legislatures should have a more substantial role in regulating federal elections. More extreme versions would minimize the authority and duty of officials like the Secretary of State's office. Can you please share your perspective on this idea and the implications for the office? We'll begin with Mr. Maurer.
0: It's very clear from our U.S. Constitution that voting is a state's right. It belongs with us. And even within Indiana, it's said that we have 92 different elections because each county has a lot of discretion. They have a menu from which to pick, and it's the county serving its local needs best. The needs of Switzerland County are very different from the needs of Marion County, but if they all choose off a pre-selected menu um, that, from the Secretary of State, that's the best way to serve the needs of those of each local community. The federal level and the federalization of our elections is tantamount to not only taking them from us, but also introducing all kinds of new vulnerabilities and new um, components that will complicate and stymie our abilities to choose our leaders.
1: Thank you, Mr. Maurit. Ms. Wells, the same
2: question. Can you share your perspective on this idea and the implications for the office? So the independent state legislature theory is just that, a theory. It is not doctrine. And so it will be heard by the Supreme Court this fall in Harper v. Moore. I want to go one step further than Jeff says about the ISL theory, though, and the problems that it could give individual states. It is not just about a state's rights argument. It is also about possibly cutting out states, um, judici- the state judiciary and in its ability to step in and tell election officials when something is wrong. And so the ISL theory could be very a very slippery slope. It has people talking about it all around the country. Again, it is just that, a theory. Um, and it is actually very surprising that the Supreme Court is even taking it up. And I feel that people should be watching it with alarm. Thank you. Mr. Maurer, allow 30 seconds for rebuttal.
0: If you like hearing, I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help, this is your solution.
2: Thank you. Ms. Wells, would you like 30 seconds for a rebuttal as well? Right. I think our our, combina- our country has been founded on interaction between the federal government and the state government working together. Um, you know what? I've served in the military, like I said, for almost 20 years. That is a federal organization, and I do not feel that I am an evil person because I served on behalf of our country, and I um, was led by the federal government. I'm, in fact, very proud, and I think that we can work together um, for, for better solutions for a stronger democracy.
1: Thank you. Ms. Wells, we'll start with you on the next question. Can you describe the responsibility of the continuing care retirement communities, and could you
2: address whether you think the division could do more to protect the consumer? Right. So when there is a continuing care retirement community, they have to work through the secretary of state um, for a one-time certification and making sure that they are doing all the things that they should be doing and having an adequate community that serves um, our older generation. And so with that community, we wanna make sure that we are working with these communities, but also checking in on them. Because like I said, it is a one-time deal where they are signed off on, but we could do better in making sure that that we are checking in, especially when we know that problems arise because of the vulnerability of um, our older population and being taken advantage of.
1: Thank you, Ms. Wells. Mr. Maurer, same question about continuing care, retirement communities, and protection to the consumer.
0: Sure, let's talk about protection to the consumer, the residents of these communities, and in light of their vote and their ballot and ballot security. My grandmother lived in a facility like this for years. And she lived on the Alzheimer's ward because that's what she had. And so somehow, magically, some group had come through and taken her vote, taken her signature, and submitted it for her. And so we don't know who that was or what they voted for for her, but there they were operating on the ward, an Alzheimer's ward, of a senior or continuing care facility. That's an unconscionable abuse of their right, not only their right as a consumer, but their right as a, as a voter. And to think about how my grandmother's ballot access was taken from her by some unknown group, that's what we need to stop. That's one of the many vulnerabilities that we need to address in securing our elections.
1: Thank you, Mr. Maurer. My next question involves voter fraud, and I want to know your opinion if it's a concern to Indiana
0: voter fraud happens all the time. Uh, Someone just reached out to the campaign because they thought they had voted, and it turns out their votes were declined the last two cycles because of some kind of transposition of of a birth date. And so that's one simple version. We have nearly one and a half registered voters for every voting member, and that means there are millions of votes that can be cast by people who aren't voting. Requiring a photo ID protects the non-voter, the person who can't or won't vote or chooses not to, because just like identity theft, it prohibits somebody else from taking your identity and stealing your vote.
1: Thank you.
2: Ms. Wells, the same question. Is voter fraud a concern in Indiana? Voter fraud should always be looked at by the Secretary of State and made sure that we are doing everything that we can do to safeguard against it. But if we look again, To history and to evidence, we see that as far as voter fraud, there has not been a large, organized, concerted effort of voter fraud for partisan gain. What we see, though, is that there have been isolated incidents of voter fraud in the past. I'll even mention an example. One of our Republican secretaries of state, Charlie White, was found to have committed voter fraud. He was prosecuted. He was indicted and and sent to jail. And so we can deal with voter fraud when it occurs. But again, we should not be perpetuating that there is this huge voter fraud problem when we have no evidence to support it. Thank you.
1: Ms. Wells, what role should the Secretary of State's office have in training clerks and election volunteers in conducting elections in Indiana?
2: One of the things that I take the most pleasure in or that I am so happy to have been able to do was to sit down with the state clerk's um, executive board and to get to know them and their everyday mission. We have to remember that clerks wear multiple hats. As an attorney, I know that, right? I've gone to the desk. I've worked with the clerk. They have to also be um, there for the courts. And so with elections, that is not the only thing they are doing. They need support from the Secretary of State's office because they are the boots on the ground. And every time that a party um, or an actor perpetuates these falsehoods they make the clerk's jobs harder because the clerks are the ones that are intercepting the phone calls um, of concerned citizens who have been led astray with mis and disinformation and so when it comes to clerks training we will continue forward how they have been doing business but we will also make sure that we are supporting them every step of the way.
1: Thank you, Ms. Wells. Mr. Maurer, the same question. What role should the Secretary of State's office have in training clerks and election volunteers for the election?
0: The only falsehood is believing that everything is perfect. That's delusional. What instead we need to do is focus on making things better. There's proof that things aren't working right. Because in 2020 and 2016, both losers of those elections claimed that the other party had stolen or rigged the election. It's the process, it's the election that's failing us. A good election is one in which the loser accepts the results, not because they like the outcome, but because they trust the process. And so by that metric, our elections are failing us, not party, not, not falsehoods. So we have to focus on the training for our clerks, for our poll workers, for our election day workers, so that they have the tools and the transparency to help all of us trust and restore trust in our elections again. Some of that, just imagine stepping into a new job as a clerk, where you have to be the expert, and maybe your staff is just one other person. We have to look to the clerk community and see other states to guide us for what that training should be, and then aggressively offer that and include that as part of the onboarding and for all of our election day workers.
2: Thank you, Mr. Maurer. Ms. Wells, I'll offer you a 30 second rebuttal. I'm gonna have to counter um, with validating people's beliefs that the elections were stolen and therefore their their behavior was appropriate. It absolutely was not. We can't say that it's the process that's the problem. We have people who are acting irresponsibly, who are power hungry and who can't accept results because they don't wanna give up power. We have to face that head on and again, fight it with good information and evidence.
1: Thank you, Ms. Wells. Mr. Maurer, you also have 30 seconds.
0: We can fight with good information and evidence with a comprehensive audit, a top-to-bottom audit of everything that we do. Every ballot that comes in, every door that gets locked, every person that sees or touches the election process in one way or another. That is how we are going to dispel that kind of bad behavior by, sh- by shining sunlight into dark places. We need a comprehensive, independent audit of all 92 counties before the elections are certified.
1: Thank you, Mr. Mayor. A recent study published by the Nonpartisan Coalition for Integrity ranked Indiana 51 in terms of campaign finance laws, weaker than any state and the District of Columbia. What role should the Secretary of State's office have in improving Indiana campaign finance activities? And I'll start with Mr. Maurer.
0: Sure. So we saw it right here in Indiana. Our current sitting Secretary of State, um, when she was first appointed, uh, violated campaign finance laws by soliciting donations at a time that was prohibited because our state legislature was still in session. Our campaign finance laws are complicated and intended, written by the two-party system to make it complicated for, for everyone and particularly for all third parties. So simplifying them but also allowing for greater transparency so that way we can understand who our candidates are and how they're being purchased.
1: Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Ms. Wells, the same question, and that is asking what role the Secretary of State should have in improving campaign finance
2: laws. So the Secretary of State is essentially the campaign finance administrator. And what we see in like the study you referenced where we are 51 out of all states and D.C. is because it is a bit of the wild, wild west in Indiana when it comes to campaign finance. That's why Jeff and I's opponent um, bought a 40, almost $44,000 car with donor money, but didn't have any repercussions. Uh, Our statutes have no teeth. They have no enforcement. And so as the Secretary of state and the campaign finance administrator, we can start to message with the legislature that we need to strengthen our campaign finance statutes, and we also need to make sure that we are holding, um, especially candidates uh, and committees and PACs, uh, responsible for what they are doing. You just can't file a report and say, I checked the box and I'm good to go. There has to be a bit of investigation to make sure that everybody is doing the right thing.
1: Thank you, Ms. Wells. The next question is for you first. How will you assure that all 92 counties in Indiana will follow
2: federal and state voting laws in the same manner? Well, so I believe that the 92 counties have overall done a very good job. It is not easy to be a clerk. It is not easy um, to be on the local election board, especially what I've been hearing when I go throughout the state of Indiana is concerned election board members who are fighting disinformation, who are who are being um, bombarded with the request for more information because people are believing in these conspiracy theories about elections. And so I would continue to help them in the ways that they have been helped, but also. A point of leadership, right? So again, I was so excited when I sat down with the clerks and talked to them um, because having come from one of the largest organizations in the world, the Department of Defense, I'm used to a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of red tape and I love working with soldiers. Um, so just like that, I would love working with the clerks and making sure that we are doing the best we can across all 92 counties and making sure that they have the best information and the most up-to-date um, technology available to them and and best practices.
1: Thank you. Mr. Mayor. the same question about compliance for the 92 counties in terms of federal and state voting laws.
0: If we really truly want to help our clerks and give them the best information possible, we need to do an audit. And that's not to punish them or challenge them, that's to actually see how are we doing things and what could we be doing better. And that means looking at their processes, looking at their technologies, looking at their people, looking at their resources and saying actually you need more help and we need to give you more resources. That is the solution, that's the pathway forward. We need to know what to work on. Just like a father helping his son learn how to swing a baseball bat, we need to review the process and find ways to constantly make it better. And we're going to do that with a comprehensive risk-limiting audit of all 92 counties. That's the best way to understand where we're coming up short or where we can be doing even better with compliance for both state and federal regulations.
2: Thank you. Ms. Wells, would you like a 30-second rebuttal? Yes, please. Yes. We don't help our county clerks by giving them more things to do. This 92-county audit um, may sound like a great thing, but if we would just do our jobs on the front end as secretaries of state, we wouldn't have to have 92-county audits. Uh, The audits are to catch mistakes, and a system shouldn't be riddled with mistakes. Uh, We should be able to have a system that functions the right way the first time around.
1: Thank you. And Mr. Maurer, 30 seconds for you as well.
0: That's wishful thinking. And we see it at all levels of government where there are audits and control boards and reviews of audits. So the reality is these eight organizations are complicated and systems and processes are complicated. That's why we need to check it and review it. And only by understanding what's working and what's not working, that's how we're going to make it better.
1: Thank you. A tough study that came out right before the 2020 election showed Indiana with a steep drop in 18-year-old and 19-year-old registrants from 2016. What would you do to promote registration and turnout among the youngest Hoosier voters? And Mr. Maurer, we'll begin with you.
0: It comes back to choices. Our youngest uh, voters are Used to opening up their phones and having a world, a globe of choices on their phones. We can order pizzas online, we could pay our taxes, we can bank, we could train cryptocurrencies on our phones. All of these things are possible. They're all choices on one small screen. And part of that frustration is when we go into vote, we often have only one option, literally an unopposed candidate. And the best way to encourage voter turnout and participation and young people who are interested in voting for more, for voting for something, that's to give them someone to vote for, to give them more parties, more options, more candidates. Let's have some competition on our ballot.
1: Thank you, Mr. Merritt. Ms. Wells, the same question, what would you do to promote registration and turn out among the youngest Hoosier voters?
2: Well, we have to acknowledge history, and that is that in 2008, um, Barack Obama, when he was seeking um, to to be president, uh, was largely successful with young Hoosiers. Uh, He buckled down and he made sure that he tried to triple the registrations for the youth. What you saw after that was a concerted effort to limit access for youth to the ballot. Voting centers were moved off of campus, Um, uh, the transportation issues. Uh, keep uh, young voters from voting. And so what we need to be doing is, again, like I said earlier, is not being afraid of voters, not being afraid of the youth. They are our future. We have to be talking to them, asking them, what is your voting experience? How about a college advisory board with the Secretary of State? We have a brain drain in Indiana, and we need to civically engage our youth as soon as we can. And that is being registered and involved in the political process.
1: Thank you. This will be my last question before we go to our closing remarks. Ms. Wells, I'll start with you. Can you explain to all prospective voters that are watching tonight why you're the best candidate for this position?
2: I have um, gone throughout the state and talked about this position and that it is an office that traditionally is technocratic and administrative. It is only after 2020 that we have seen Secretary of State's offices all across the nation be contested, specifically by election deniers. In Indiana, we have an election denier who is running with the Republican Party. This year, Hoosiers should be voting for the candidate that is pro-democracy. And I'm the only pro-democracy candidate on the ballot this year. I have said over and over tonight that we must be operating from a fact-based, evidence-based place. That is the only way I know to function. I have held a top-secret security clearance for the last 16 years as a military officer. And it is with honor and pride that I operate from that perspective, from being evidence-based, from the facts. And I, again, like I said, am the only pro-democracy candidate for
0: voters to choose
2: from.
1: Thank you very much. Mr. Maurer, the same question for you. Can you explain to all prospective voters watching why you're the best candidate for this position?
0: Sure. My background, my career has been in finance and technology, and I managed a $300 million budget and worked very closely with uh, internal audit to implement strong accounting controls. These are the good common sense tools that will give us the insight to know that our systems, our elections, are performing as they need to but let's address the 800 pound gorilla not in the room tonight. Healthy democracies need healthy debate and candidates who refuse to debate are assuming that they've won the election and they don't even need to listen to you. There's a candidate who refused to debate in 2000, 2004, 2012, 2018. His name is Vladimir Putin. And for candidates who refuse to debate, the company you keep is Vladimir Putin.
1: To both candidates, I thank you. I apologize that we've run out of time for your closing remarks, but I felt that those responses were wonderful. And to the audience, I want to thank you all for joining us here this evening to hear the candidates for our chief election officer, the Indiana Secretary of State. We particularly want to thank WFYI for producing and broadcasting this important debate and affiliates and commercial stations for making it accessible statewide. Thank you so much for tuning in.
0: This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.